Well, good evening. Welcome to our Revelation study on Wednesday night here at First Baptist Garland. Glad to, glad to have you. If somebody can grab our door back there for us, I'd appreciate that and get that shut. It's good to see you and welcome to those of you online as well. We always have a large number on Wednesday night that's watching us and studying God's Word with us. So we're glad wherever you are and however you may be joining us uh, on, on uh, wherever you are but for our study. I want to mention one thing before we begin and that is, of course, tomorrow is the National Day of Prayer. You may remember that or have seen that. Uh, tomorrow our chapel will be open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. If you want to come into our chapel and we'll have some prayer guides for you, uh, items to pray through. So that is uh, tomorrow, National Day of Prayer, 7 to 7 uh, at our chapel if you want to come and have a time of prayer. Well, let's go to God in prayer now and ask His blessings upon our study time as we look at Revelation chapter 9. Father, thank you tonight for the opportunity to study your word together. We thank you. We love you. We know that you're in control. And God, as we look at the, the terrifying events of the future, God, we know that you are in, in control. You're sovereign, and we trust you. And we thank you that through Jesus Christ, we have the ultimate victory. We have a home in heaven. And Father, thank you for how you tell us about that at the end of Revelation as well. So, Lord, tonight, may you be our teacher. May the Holy Spirit guide us into these verses. Give us insight and wisdom. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, we are in session number 10, which means chapter number 9, because session 1 was our introduction to the book, and we are to the ninth chapter. We will look at all 21 verses this evening, and uh, it's starting to get interesting. All that's taking place when the, uh, the, uh, the, the trumpets are blown and the scroll, the seals were broken, and so, of course, we had to miss last week, but we're picking back up where we left off this week. Remember now, the word revelation means apocalypse, absolutely. It's the Greek word apocalypsis, kind of means to unveil something that's previously been hidden. And so, that's what the word apocalypse mean. it was, means. It was written by John. Where was he at? Island of Patmos in the Greek islands there, a beautiful little island around 90 A.D. And who did he write it to? Seven churches of Asia Minor, which is currently in the, in the country of Turkey. And so he wrote uh, the uh, letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, a series of visions. How many different visions are in here? More than 60 visions are, uh, are in the, uh, the book of Revelation and references to the Old Testament. About 350 of those references to the Old, one of them tonight, one of them to the Old Testament. Of course, you remember we had the letters to the seven churches just by way of summary. And then after those, John saw a vision of God sitting on the throne in the throne room of heaven. Then Jesus came. He was given the scroll. He was the only one worthy to open the scroll. And you might remember then as soon as he opened the scroll and broke the seals, there were seven seals that were broken followed by seven trumpet blasts. If you remember, the first four seals had to do with judgment upon the earth. And the first four trumpets blown had to do with judgment upon the earth. And so last week, or the last session, two weeks ago, we looked at the first four trumpets blown in chapter 8. And so I want us to review what happened there because it leads us right into chapter 9 tonight. So if you look at your outline there, letter A, the seven trumpets from last week, or rather last session, chapter 8, verses 1 through 13, whenever the first trumpet was blown, uh, you might remember it was a plague on the vegetation. 
verse 7. It was a global firestorm that happened, possibly an asteroid that hits the earth or a comet that hits the earth. And as a result, all the or rather much of the vegetation is all destroyed, causing great famine and food being hard to come by. The second trumpet is blown, and it's a plague upon the sea in verses 8 and 9. All the oceans uh, are turned to blood. Possibly, again, another firestorm, possible asteroid, maybe a meteor shower. We don't know what's going to cause it, but something is going to land in the ocean that turns them the color of blood. And then the third trumpet was blown in chapter 8, and it was a plague on the fresh waters, uh, verses 10 and 11. Once again, another uh, firestorm from the cosmic realm, whether it's asteroid, a comet, whatever it is, hits the earth again, and there is a plague on the fresh waters. Some say it's the same comet, then these things happen successfully, or same asteroid, or separate asteroids, we don't know. But there will be a plague on the fresh waters and the streams. People will die trying to get fresh water. And then the fourth trumpet is a plague on the heavens and darkness. Once again, firestorms from volcanic eruptions and uh, the plague on the heavens and a lot of the ash, everything that's in the debris that's in the sky from all the asteroids then will cause a darkening of the sun. Then after the fourth trumpet blast, something interesting happened. Chapter 8, verse 13. Go to 13 of verse 8, which is the last verse of chapter 8, which propels us then into chapter 9. Verse 13 of 8, John said, Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. So imagine he sees this eagle fly right over his head and crying out with a loud voice. And the eagle says, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So the seven trumpets, three, uh, four of them's already been blown in chapter uh, 8. And now he's saying we got three trumpets left to blow and, and you just thought it was bad. The first four trumpets, it's going to get worse. So much so that I need to warn mankind, whoa, three woes are coming upon you. Three trumpet blasts because it's about to get even worse. So the traumatized survivors of the first four trumpets have to brace themselves because it's about to get bad. Where are we in the tribulation? Well, the tribulation begins, the trumpets blow most likely, the first four trumpets are the first three years of the tribulation. So, tribulation seven years long, we're three years, we're approaching the midpoint of the tribulation. If you look at all the prophecies, there's something about the midway point of the tribulation that's going to be a time of extreme tribulation. That's what we're about to read tonight. After we read this, I think you're going to agree that is a time of extreme tribulation. It does get worse, and um, it's even worse than the first four trumpets. So, tonight, the reason those last three trumpets are so bad is now all the demons of hell are unleashed upon the earth. 
So far, it's just been things in the cosmic atmosphere, an asteroid or a comet or something that, that, that pummels the earth. But now we have an unleashing of the most heinous demons of hell imaginable. Now, you say, well, a demon's a demon. Nope, there are some worse than others. And we'll talk about that here in just a moment. The very worst of the worst are going to be unleashed. And they love to torment people. And so that's what we're going to see with the blowing of the last three trumpets. Now, before we get there, I want to say one word about chapter 9 of, of Revelation. The words as, A-S, and like, L-I-K-E, are mentioned more in chapter 9 of Revelation than any other book in the entire Bible. Why is that significant? Because you kind of get the feeling that John is trying as best he can to put into human language what he's seeing in the spiritual realm. Well, this was like this, and well, it was as this. And he's trying to give us a description as best he can in our language because it is so horrible He's trying to put it in language to convey it to us. And so you see the word as and the word like more times in chapter 9 of Revelation than any other chapter in all of Scripture. So let's look at the chapter and see that the last two trumpets, or the last three trumpets, but two of them are in chapter 9 and the, and the seventh trumpet's in chapter 11. So we won't get there for a couple of weeks. But we'll see trumpets 5 and trumpet 6. Letter B on your outline, the fifth and sixth trumpets, first of all. Verse 1, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with smoke from the shaft. Now let's set the picture here and let you see the scene. The fifth angel blows the trumpet and he sees a star fall from heaven to earth. Who's the star? Well, some people say it was a literal star. Well, it can't be because the star starts talking and acting. So it has to be. Remember, remember now one of the, the uh, principles we have is that you take every passage literally unless there's an obvious reason to take it symbolically. Here's an obvious reason. Stars don't talk. So it's got to be symbolic. So is, is the star the devil? Or is the star a fallen angel? Or is the star uh, Satan himself? Is the star Nero or the Roman emperor or Domitian, the Roman emperor? Or is it an angel of judgment? Or is it a good angel? Or is it Jesus? Who's the star? And so the theories all over about who this star is, I would, I would say most theologians believe that it's most likely a demon. We'll, we'll see why as we get to going and looking at, at the star itself. So the star falls from heaven. One of the reasons we don't believe it's a good angel or it's not Jesus, because anytime the word fallen is used in reference to a heavenly being, it's usually bad. 
In fact, can't think of any times it's good. Usually a fallen angel or something that's fallen means it's, it's one that has fallen spiritually as well as, as well as physically. So that's one reason a lot of theologians think, well, it's, it's an evil uh, star or an evil spirit or a demon that has fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the, does any of your translations say abyss? Okay, several of you. Mine says bottomless pit. But in Greek, it's the word abyss. Now, what is the abyss? A-B-Y-S-S. The abyss is a prison for demons. Did you know that demons had prisons? It is a maximum security prison for demons. Not just a maximum security, it is what's called a super maximum security prison, which houses the most malicious demons imaginable. Now, chapter 20, verse 7 of Revelation, we're going to talk more about this once we reach chapter 20, because this is called Satan's maximum prison. When Satan rebelled from as an angel in heaven... He led one-third, this is according to Ezekiel, he led one-third of the angels to join him, and they became demons. Revelation 12, 7 talks about that. We'll talk about it more in a couple of weeks. So Satan rebelled. He led one-third of the angels to rebel against God also. They fell to earth and to the abyss, and they became demons. Some of those one-third of the demons are now demons at large. They have access to earth, um, they have access to the underworld, uh, some of them are uh, demons at large. But apparently some of the most brutal and, and some of the most uh, terrible demons you can imagine when they fell were incarcerated into a super maximum prison called the abyss. They're chained. They don't have access. Right now there are demons at large, but not the worst, most brutal, most horrible demons. Those are incarcerated in a supernatural prison called the abyss. Say, so, well, where is all this found? Luke 8, uh, 31 is one. You remember when Jesus was casting out the devil, the demons out of the man, and they ran into the pigs and ran down the, the hillside and drowned. Do you remember the demons begged him, please do not send us to the abyss? Um, Jude 6 talks about it. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 talks about it. It's a super maximum security for the worst demons of the worst. So at the fifth trumpet sound... You just thought you've seen bad demons. The others are unlocked out of the prison, and they are allowed to roam. Literally, the word abyss means, quote, a deep hole or a vast chasm in the molten core of the earth. So, with this fifth trumpet blown, somebody or something gets the key to the abyss and unleash the worst demons humanity's ever known. So imagine, just a picture of the first two verses. A great volcano begins spewing lava and ash and gases 
and smoke starts belching and as you see through the smoke hordes of frightening demons unleashed now if someone were to take the keys to the maximum security prisons all across the u.s or all across the world and just took the key and unlocked them and let everybody in the maximum security prisons out that would be frightening enough wouldn't it but it's worse than that it's the key to the worst demons of hell of the abyss they're unleashed. The smoke is, he's talking about the smoke that's rising up from the great furnace, darkening the sky, and through the smoke comes hordes of the worst demons you can ever imagine. Now, there are some people that interpret this in, a, in another way. They say, well, the star that fell, that's the word of God. And the pit, that's human nature. And the consequences, all these horrors, those are the consequences of human nature rejecting the Word of God. Okay, that sounds good. But remember one of our principles, you don't eisegete, you exegete. That is pure eisegesis. That is reading into a passage what you think's in there. Nowhere does Revelation ever tell us the star is the Word of God. Where did you get that from? Nowhere does it say the bottomless pit is human nature. Where'd you get that from? It's not in here. So don't eisegete, exegete. And we're told what happens, let's take it for face value and take it literally, unless there's some reason we're not to take it literally. Okay, so you got the picture. Hordes of demons loosed out of the prisons, and they're loose. Let's go to verse 3. Verse 3, then from the smoke came locusts on the earth and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth and they were told not to harm the grass or the earth or any green plant or any tree but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads now remember Earlier during the tribulation time, if you're saved, you have the seal of God on your forehead. So they were told, these locusts, so they're demon-possessed locusts. They, they appeared to be locusts. But demons were told, don't eat the grass, don't eat the trees. Why would locusts be told that? Tell that, or told that? Because that's what locusts do. Locusts all through Scripture have been instruments of God's judgment. Remember the plague on Egypt? It was one of the plagues. Locusts. And they came in and devoured vegetation. And then Joel said, there is a plague of locusts upon Israel because of their sin. What did it eat? It ate all the vegetation. And Joel said, but one day, one day the prophet Joel said, there will be a plague of locusts that don't eat vegetation. They attack humanity instead and here it is so the plagues locusts usually judgment upon the vegetation now judgment upon humanity now who are these locusts are they real are they figurative are they literal who are they well one theory is that they're real locusts as we would know a locust Sometimes locusts is trans. What we what we've known of as a locust is more like a cicada. In, in scripture, it's more like a grasshopper. What we would know as a grasshopper. 
So it literally could be these demon-possessed large grasshoppers, or it could be demons, or it could be a figure of speech, or it could be armies of the nations. Some have translated it that. Some, some says it's the Muslims. Some say it's the Protestants. Some have said it's the Turks, Saracens. Some have said it's the Jesuits. Uh, but again, I think we have to take passages literally unless there's an obvious reason to be symbolic. And here, there doesn't really need to be it other than what it is. So, I would take it to be a locust as we would know them. It, now, energized by, by demons. Now, look what they were, they were told. Look what they had the power to do in verse 5. Uh, rather, I'm sorry, back to verse 3. They, the, from the smoke came the locusts on earth, and they were given the power, like the power of a scorpion. Now, let's talk about that for a moment. Scorpions, as you know, what we would know scorpions to be, the largest of the insects, lobster-like claws, tail that stings, a stinger near the tail. Some people have taken these, um, the helicopter gunships in, in current militaries that look like Scorpions, to be an interpretation of that, I don't know. Some have taken that, say, well, it could be more like a military helicopter. Um, we don't really know because, again, we're not told to take it anything other than literally here. Scorpions have stingers, as you know, that pierce the skin, inject a particular venom that contains hundreds of toxins, chemically cause the brain to be magnified, the pain to be magnified in, in, across the body, sends those signals to your brain. About 1,500 species of scorpions, only about 30 of them are fatal. So, so most of the species are not fatal. It is very painful. I've never been stung by scorpions. Some of you may have. I've heard it's very painful. But what they're doing is not killing. They're just inflicting pain upon humanity. And so, these locusts were given the power of scorpions to attack and torment people. So, the demons appeared as small horses with human faces and stingers in their tails, which take pleasure in attacking and tormenting people. The reason I said small horses, the word locust could also be translated small horse. I don't know this. Some people say when you look at a locust under a microscope, it resembles a horse. I don't know if that's true or not. But I do know that the word can be used interchangeably. So anyway, they're given power like the power of scorpions on earth. Verse 5. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings somebody. Now from what I understand, you're stung by a scorpion. It hurts for about 24 to 48 hours. So you can imagine a continual stinging for five months as you're attacked. Not killing you, but just inflicting pain. Look at verse 6. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. So can you imagine scorpion stings so severe for five months you want to die? That's hard to imagine, isn't it? But notice in verse 6, John stops reporting and he starts prophesying. Because verse 6 is more like a prophecy of what's to come. He had been reporting what he saw, what he heard. Now he's starting to prophesy. Because people will seek death and they'll not find it. They'll long to die, but death will flee from them. Verse 7. 
he starts describing these locusts in greater detail. Verse 7. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. Here's you get the word horse in there. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Verse 8, their hair like women's hair. Why not? Why women's hair, not men's hair? And their teeth like lion's teeth. And, excuse me. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. And I'll stop there for a second. How frightening when you see these demons looking like small horses prepared for battle, crowns of gold on their head, human faces, hair like a woman's hair, long, long hair. Uh, long hair in the Bible was always glory. If you lost your long hair, it was you losing your glory. Teeth like lion's teeth to bite or inflict, inflict pain. Breastplates like breastplates of iron. And then notice, it's not necessarily what they look like, but what they sounded like that was terrifying to John. Because he starts describing their sound. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of chariots of horses rushing into battle. And it's, so it's the sound of these demons that are so terrifying to John. Five months. So, the repetition, stressing their awful ability to hurt and inflict pain, is mentioned twice now, two different times. Verse 10. They have tails and stings like scorpions. That's three times he's told us that. And in their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. That's twice he's told us that. Verse 11. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. His name in Greek is Apollyon. This first woe is past. Behold, we have two woes still to come. Now, let's stop there for a moment. They have as king over them... Who's the king of the locusts? Well, we don't know because we're told in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 27, locusts have no king. Why would Proverbs tell us that? And now we're told they have a king. So, who's the leader of the locusts? And, and who's the angel of the bottomless pit? Devil, right? Satan, right? Well, hold on a second. Satan's not the master of hell. He's a victim of hell. He's going to be cast there. He's not the ruler of it. He, we're told he's cast into it. He's a victim of it later on. Who's the angel of the bottomless pit? We're not told. Another one of the mysteries. So, we know his name. His name is Abaddon in Hebrew, Polyon in Greek. Word, what does those words mean? It means to destroyer. 
What's the opposite of a destroyer? Savior, right? So those of us in Christ have a Savior. Those without Christ have a destroyer who for eternity will be over you. Savior will be over us. The destroyer will be over them in the abyss. Now, that's the first woe. That's the, that is the trumpet number five. So it's getting worse. Each trumpet seems to get a little worse. Now let's go to trumpet number six. The sixth trumpet, the four angels beyond the Euphrates River, verse 13. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet. And I heard a voice. So it's not what he saw, it's what he heard. I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, the year, were released to kill a third of mankind, verse 16. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. Now let's stop there for a minute. There's a lot there, and we'll, we'll pick up the last few verses. As if the scorpion demons were not enough, now we're told the next two trumpets are even worse. It seems that the severity increases. So the sixth trumpet sounds, and more demons are released, but these are deadly demons. There are four brutal, high-ranking demons that are going to be released and have 200 million soldiers with them. Four high-ranking demons who will lead an army of 200 million demons. Now, how bad must a demon must be to be bound they're going to be unbound and released. And the region they're going to be released from is the Euphrates River. Now, let's talk about that for a moment. The Euphrates River is all through the Bible. Uh, it's about 1,700 miles long. It is the longest river in West Asia. It's the river of the Middle East. Uh, the word Euphrates means, I announce good. The Greek word for Euphrates means good. Starting to dry up is what uh, the, the garbage and pollution is making it a murky green color today. The Bible tells us it will not totally dry up. It'll be, still be flowing uh, at the time. You can still get a canoe down it if you want to canoe it uh, today. So it's still flowing that much. And the Bible will tell us it'll still be flowing at the end times. The Euphrates River was a landmark of ancient Babylon and it was a border of the Roman Empire. Now, Here's what's interesting about the Euphrates River. The Euphrates was the location of the first sin in Genesis 2. It's the Garden of Eden was there, right? It's the location of the first murder in Genesis 4. It's the location of the first dictatorship in Genesis 10. It's the location of the first organized rebellion against God, the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. It's the location of the first war confederation in Genesis 14. 
It's the original homeland of Abraham and the Jewish people before they went to, to Israel, but it was characterized by idolatry whenever they were there. Then it became the border for Israel. Israel stopped at the Euphrates, according to Joshua 1.4. So, everything beyond the Euphrates became the center of governments that opposed Israel, all the way through the Old Testament. If it's beyond the Euphrates, they're against Israel. They hate them. Who's beyond the Euphrates? Assyria, they captured Israel. Babylon, they captured Israel. Persia, they were in control of Israel. So, anything beyond the Euphrates was a, was a euphemism for people who hated God's people. Of course, the Garden of Eden was near the Euphrates. So, now, somewhere near the Euphrates at the end of time, four demonic commanders are waiting to be released, according to this verse, at the right time, the right day, the right month, the right year, there's an appointed day they get released. And once they're released, they invade the earth with 200 million troops and bring about death to one-third of the population. What countries are around the Euphrates? Iran, Iraq, Pakistan, Afghanistan. It's going to be a coalition from there that will invade the earth with 200 million troops and bring about one-third of the population's death. Think about that. That will be the greatest death toll in human history. A third of the population killed by the demonic forces at the sixth trumpet blast. Now, one other thought, and then we'll move on. There was a major power at the time John wrote this. 90 A.D., around the Euphrates River. Anybody know the country, the name of them? The Parthians. P-A-R-T-H-I-A-N-S. The Parthians. The Parthians were dreaded. They were in power from 200 a, uh, B.C. to 200 A.D., so about a 400-year period. The Parthians. The Parthians were the only groups... The only group the Romans could not defeat. Now, they weren't powerful enough to take the world, but their cavalry, their horses, and their chariots, and their bows, and their, their military was really strong. They were hard to beat in a battle. They, they were advanced. The horses were advanced. And the horses had breastplates as well as the riders had breastplates. And their weaponry, it was known as the Parthian shot. It was a composite bow that could shoot frontwards and backwards, and they were adept at both. And so, the riders with the breastplates, backwards and forwards, it sounded like maybe a description in, in chapter 9 of the Parthians. Because the tail that struck him was just as powerful as the bites. And the breastplates where the horses and the riders both had them made of iron. It sounds a little bit like he was describing what they already knew in the day. A military that was almost unbeatable. The Parthians. Now the Parthians were founded from the Parni tribe. 
by Arceus, and they faded out about 225 A.D., but it's possible John could be comparing this future army to what they already knew to be a formidable army at the time. Where is the Parthian Empire today? Well, it's Iran. Parts of Pakistan, parts of Afghanistan, but it's primarily the country of Iran. So because of that, a lot of theologians think that Iran is going to play a key role in the future end of the world. So, one-third of the mankind will be killed at this time. Now, let's continue on verse 16, or the verse 18. No, no, I'm sorry, we're at 16. The number of mounted troops is twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. Now, think about how many. That's 200,000. That's 200 million, basically. 200 million soldiers. China, in 1965, claimed to have 200 million soldiers. Why that number, we don't know, but not certain they did. They claimed that. During World War II, the Allied and Axis forces combined had 70 million so, 200 million is a lot of soldiers. Is that symbolic? Is that number symbolic? It could be, but we're not told what it's symbolic of. So, I guess you have to assume that this is going to be literal. Verse 17, this is how I saw the horses in my vision. Those who rode them and those wore breastplates the color of fire and sapphire and sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lions' heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. So the breastplates were basically colors of red and blue and yellow. Now, what's interesting about the three at the end of verse 17, the three um, uh, cosmic events that are going to happen, fire, smoke, and sulfur came out of their mouths. What's interesting in the original language is the, the definite article the is in front of every one of those. So it's literally the fire and the smoke and the sulfur. Because of that, uh, grammarians, Greek grammarians, usually say that that means three different events. Each one, if you have the definite article, means it's all by itself. So this army would be led and they would create fire around the world and then they would create smoke around the world and then sulfur that's raining down. Now anytime in the Bible you see fire, smoke, and sulfur, it's usually some form of judgment. You remember sulfur raining down upon Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sinfulness. Uh, you remember a lot of cities were defired, uh, uh, destroyed by, by fire. So, these are usually symbols of divine judgment or God's judgment. Look at verse 18. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. Verse 19. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. Wait a minute. Remember the Parthians? They could shoot frontwards and backwards. For their tails are like the serpents with heads and by means of them, they wound. Now, some people see missiles from the front and the back, just as deadly from the front as from the back. We don't know if it's talking about a military and missiles or if it's literally what is described here. Verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear 
our walk. Folks, if you go through all of this, don't you think it's about time to repent? But those people who live through all of this will not repent. They would rather suffer than repent and turn to Jesus. Amazing, isn't it? So, they'll go through it. The work of their hands. Anytime you see the phrase work of their hands, is always idolatry. It was always, all through Scripture, violated first and second commandments, violated sixth, seventh, and eighth commandments. The work of their hands, idolatry. They're going to keep worshiping anything other than God. And they're going to continually do that. They're not going to, not going to repent. Verse 21 nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So it's going to be a culture. Not only is it going to be super energized by these demons who are let out of prison, it's going to be energized by the people themselves who are full of murders, sexual immorality, theft, and the word for sorcery is very interesting in Greek. It's the word pharmakon. What does that sound like? Pharmacy. You're exactly right. It means illicit drug use. So, there will be a, the tribulation is going to be marked, not just by the demons, but by murders, illicit drug use, sexual immorality, and theft. And people will continue down that path, even though they've seen everything. For five months, they've been terrorized by demons. They've seen the armies kill a third of the population. And they're still going to continue murdering sexual immorality, their drugs, and their thefts. Nothing's going to change. Well, um, it gets worse. Trumpet number seven, you wonder how, right? Well, it does. And we'll get there in two weeks in Revelation chapter 11. He saw, uh, he saw another vision in chapter 10 that we'll look at uh, next, next week. Questions or comments quickly before we... Uh, yes? I'm sorry? Great question. If this is the last part of the tribulation, nobody's repented, has the Holy Spirit been removed? We're not, we don't really know. Now, this is more likely the midpoint of the, of the tribulation. It's not the end of it. So, most likely, we're talking about the first, three, first four trumpets, first three years of the tribulation. So, we're reaching around the midpoint. But what's interesting, all the way through the Old Testament prophecy, do a study sometime of the midpoint of the tribulation. It's really interesting because some of the worst is going to come at the midpoint of the tribulation, and, and, and we're going to see this. That's why some people believe that if Christians do go through the tribulation, we'll be taken out at mid-trib what a lot of people call mid-trib uh, uh, theologians, that we, we're taken out the midpoint. Some believe we're taken out, don't have to go through any of it, some at the very end, uh, and so most likely the, the, the midpoint. Now, the question of whether the Holy Spirit's here or not, that was one of, the, that was one of the, the, the issues I had or the questions I had with the major theory today that, well, we're raptured out and Holy Spirit leaves and church is gone and we're not, we're not a part of this at all anywhere. Uh, well, if the Holy Spirit's gone, how do 144,000 get saved? Uh, now, some other people say, well, by the midpoint, the Holy Spirit's gone. That's why they don't repent, because you can't repent unless the Holy Spirit draws you. So, that's, that's another theory as well. So, we don't really know. Uh, we're not really told enough. We're told everything we need to know, but not everything that we want to know, I think. And that's one of the questions we really don't have an answer to. Good question. Any others before we got about a, about a minute and a half? So.
Anybody else? Yes. So, uh, the army that are uh huh. I'm, I'm sorry. Was, uh, could it be demons? What? Uh huh. Good question. The question is: the two hundred million in the army is it all demons, or will it be will it be people? Um, it looks like a combination of both. In fact, let me read you. We got the time. Let me read you a quote right quick from one of the leading theologians on this passage. Are, is this army demons, or is it or is it people? He says, "Quote: Essentially, what we have described here is that the prison is emptied." The final conflict is going to be a war between all the supernatural forces of evil and those humans loyal to them against God. It's a cosmic evil and it's going to be chaos. So while it's clear that the hordes here are demonic, there could also be the possibility of human armies involved as well. You've really got both going on. So good question. A lot of, a lot of people are, are wondering and some think, the demons are definitely going to be released, but then human armies loyal to them and loyal to those four who will rise up may join them. So maybe a combination, and that's what one of the leading theologians says, maybe a combination of human armies and demon armies combining together. So yeah, good question. All right, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to see me afterwards or send me an email. I'll be glad to respond. Let's pray together. We'll close. Father, thank you. In the midst of reading about the end and what it's going to look like, we thank you most of all for Jesus who gives us the victory. Uh, and so, God, I'm, I'm thankful that in you we have victory and we have a home in heaven where the destroyer will never have control over us, but the Savior will. And, God, in that we rejoice tonight. Guide us this rest of this week. God, may we walk with you in it. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. See you Sunday.